Hello and welcome to this Tax and Fiduciary Podcast brought to you by Investec. I'm your host, Nozi Poshabalala. Through these podcasts, we highlight the key processes and tax considerations that you need to understand when either moving to an international geography or if you hold assets in that geography. And so in this podcast, we'll be focusing on Australia, but you can also listen to our podcast about the US, the UK and Mauritius by clicking on the separate links on this page. I'm really excited for the upcoming conversation. We're going to be touching on the following topics. We're going to be looking at key South African and Australian tax considerations. We're going to look at residency versus non-residency taxation for individuals, trusts and companies, as well as cross-border taxation issues. We're going to ask the question how to prepare yourself for a move to Australia. And we're going to finally land on gift or cash donations from a family member in another jurisdiction and the implications thereof. And so joining me today are two incredible guests uh, who are going to help us navigate these topics. We're joined by Elizabeth Fick. She is the joint head looking after tax and fiduciary for Investec. She brings a wealth of experience as an international expert on tax and estate planning. And we're also joined by Jonathan Ortner. He's a partner in Arnold Bloch Liebler, a legal and advisory firm in Australia. Jonathan deals in all areas of direct and indirect tax with a particular focus on the taxation of trusts and corporate income tax, as well as mergers and acquisitions. So I'm sitting in Johannesburg. Lizzie is in Stellenbosch and Jonathan joins us from Sydney. Hello to you both. Thank you so much for making the time to join us. Hi, Nozzy. Hi, Jonathan. Um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Hi, Nozzy and Liz. It's great to join you both today, and I'm, I'm also looking very forward to it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm going to kick right off. Uh, and Liz, I want to come to you first. And, and the first question is really to bring into focus, why are we looking at the Australian market today? Why does it matter and why is it an important part of this podcast series? Yeah, Nozi. Um, so Australia is a very popular jurisdiction for South Africans. Um, we see a lot of us um, South Africans relocating to Australia, kids moving there, um, businesses moving there or being established there, um, South Africans acquiring property there. So it's become a very popular jurisdiction. Um, Obviously, when a South African leaves South Africa and relocates to Australia, there are South African tax consequences that need to be taken into account. However, a lot of people forget that Australia is not actually a low tax jurisdiction. It's a high tax jurisdiction. And there's significant tax consequences that need to be taken into account before you get to Australia. You know, for example, Australia really don't like foreign trusts you know, being non-Australian trust. So if you've got, if you are a beneficiary of a South African trust or an offshore trust and you go to Australia, there's significant consequences which you need to take into account. And Australia does tax quite aggressively. And, you know, Nausea, in some of our previous conversations, we were talking about going from the frying pan into the fire. Um, and Australia is probably one of the best examples of that if proper planning isn't done. Liz, I'm not sure how Jonathan is going to react to that, but uh, let me come to him. Jonathan, uh, let's maybe kick off with you unpacking what the Australian domestic tax law actually says, and more importantly, under what conditions is one taxed under Australian law? Sure. I might just add, I'm actually married to a South African, so I'm well acquainted with the South African community, very fond of me. (laughs) So I actually echo Liz's comments where... um, 
putting aside COVID, we've been seeing a lot of South African families coming to Australia, or there's a lot of South African families that live here that have their family in South Africa still. And so the tax issues are always very live. And one of those issues in particular is, you know, what are the circumstances under which an individual or which a company or trust will be taxed here? And so the two key concepts that determine taxation in Australia are source and residency. So as a general rule, you'll find that an Australian resident will be taxed on their worldwide income. So to keep it very simple, if you were to assume that an individual has a rental property in South Africa and it generates $100 of income in an income year, and then a rental property in Australia that generates $100 as well, that tax resident will be taxed on the entirety of the income they've earned, so the $200. A non-resident, however, will only be taxed on their Australian sourced income. So to continue with that above example, they'd only be taxed on the $100 from the Australian rental property, but not the South African property. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jonathan. Let's complicate matters a little bit more. Well, with Australian tax, we always complicate matters. But I I was just going to say we've also got a subset of resident, which is called a temporary resident, and they are actually taxed. Um, similarly to non-residents, so really only on Australian sourced income. So that's something that is important to bear in mind because often we find South Africans coming here on temporary visas and there may actually be concessional rules that apply to tax them whilst they're here. Jonathan, I would would suppose on the back of that really great explanation that you've just shared with us that perhaps one of the biggest questions on the minds of our listeners right now then would be how do you then determine the residency status? Sure. That's the million dollar question, really. I mean, over the last two years, we've seen a number of cases go before the courts and tribunals um, as a result of disputes with the tax office, because in particular for individuals, the test can be viewed as being highly subjective and it relies on four different tests. You've got one known as the ordinary concepts or resides test, the other being the domicile test or another being a 183 day test. And then finally, there's the Commonwealth superannuation test. And you need to work through each of those carefully, because if you satisfy the requirements of any one of those four, you will be a resident in Australia. So Liz, in the spirit of building on complexity, what happens if you are an individual tax resident in both South Africa and Australia? In other words, one is a dual resident. Nozi, this is actually a situation that arises quite often. You will find family members may um, go to Australia, but only temporarily. And they, by doing so, they actually fall within one of those four tests which Jonathan has spoken about. And Jonathan and I have actually worked on a number of matters together where this has been a situation. So you still consider tax resident in terms of South African law, but because of your temporary visit in Australia and the amount of time that you're spending there or other factors, you fall within one of those four tests and you consider tax resident in both. So the good news is, is that South Africa and Australia do have a double tax agreement, um, so a DTA, and this DTA will then push you into one of either jurisdiction. It also will deal with which country will have the primary taxing rights and certain type of income that is generated. However, it is important to note that you are just because the treaty provides relief, it doesn't always provide relief. And so it's quite important to understand your own personal circumstances and especially what the limitations of the treaty relief is that you would potentially be able to claim. 
So Jonathan, I perhaps want to move from the individual to a company now. When is a company considered an Australian tax resident? Sure, thank you. So there's two different ways that a company might be an Australian tax resident. The first if it's, is if it's incorporated in Australia. If it's not incorporated in Australia, let's say in South Africa, for example, then it will also be a resident in Australia where it carries on business here and its central management and control is here. So if, for example, a director of the South African company lives in Australia and is attending board meetings in Australia, it may be taken to have its central management and control here. And as a result of that decision-making occurring in Australia, it will also most likely be taken to carry on business here. And so that puts at risk the residency status of the company. So from the company to trust then, Jonathan, what about trust? How do we determine the residency of a trust? So very similar test. Again, there's two different ways. The first is if any of the trustees are residents of Australia, the trust will be a resident trust estate. If no trustee is resident, but the trust estate has its central management and control in Australia, then again, it will be a resident trust estate. It's important to remember as well that even if you've got multiple trustees, having one that's an Australian resident is sufficient to make it a resident trust estate here. And what I often see in practice is with trusts in South Africa, individuals are trustees, whereas in Australia, you most likely have a corporate acting as a trustee. And a very common example might be with a deceased estate. If an individual who has no connection with Australia passes away and appoints a family member as an executor, and that family member lives in Australia, then that deceased estate will become a resident and that will bring all the assets on shore. So you need to be very careful about when you're appointing trustees and determining where that trustee is resident. Back to the question of duality then, Liz. What happens if both countries tax the company or the trust? Yes, so Nausea, it will be pretty similar to an individual. South Africa and Australia does have a double tax agreement, which will provide relief in some instances. However, when you're dealing with a company or a trust, it gets slightly more complicated because it's not only the residency of the structure itself that needs to be taken into account, but very often you have the situation where you've got a trust or a company that's actually making distributions or declaring dividends to resident beneficiaries. And the question then, which we get asked is, will a treaty provide relief in these instances? So not only where the tax residency of the structure itself is a question, but if distributions are made from a structure where the residency is in question to a beneficiary in another jurisdiction, will the treaty be able to provide relief? And that's where it gets a little bit more complicated because in most instances, the country of source, so for example, South Africa, if the trust is in South Africa, South Africa is going to levy its rules. And then when the distribution is made, to Australia, Australia is then going to be looking to levy its rules. And the, the question then comes in is, will the treaty apply? And it's not always that the treaty will. So often it does provide relief. But as we said, it's never simple when dealing with Australia. And sometimes it actually doesn't. I don't know, Jonathan, if you want to give a little bit more color on, you know, what happens from an Australian perspective. No, that's a really good point, Liz. I mean, I, I think you, you nailed it on the head in terms of trying to understand who it is that's being taxed on this income. 
And if you have a situation where the beneficiary is an Australian resident receiving a distribution and is subject to tax here, but that income's already been taxed in South Africa, but say in the hands of the trustee, you have a mismatch in taxpayers and there's always a risk that exactly. the beneficiary just won't get a tax credit here. So it's something that needs to be worked through carefully, both under the treaty, but also under the, the domestic laws. What I'm really appreciating about the conversation so far is also the very important questions that the both of you are raising that our listeners need to be raising for themselves. And perhaps, Liz, just to come back to you, I mean, one of the things I've been hearing is that, you know, foreign trusts are treated quite onerously uh, from an Australian tax perspective. Perhaps we could look at now the tax implications for an Australian resident beneficiary who's receiving a distribution from a foreign trust. How does that work? It's Nausea. So a foreign trust, you obviously mean a non-Australian trust, which would mean a South African trust or an offshore trust. Forgetting the Australian complications, let's start in South Africa. What generally happens when distributions is made is that the conduit principle will apply. Now, a lot of people don't know what the conduit principle is. They think it sounds very fancy. Actually, it's something that nine times out of 10 clients are actually already utilizing. And it's simply the rule that says if income or capital gain is generated in a trust, but distributed to a beneficiary, it will be taxed in the hands of the beneficiary at their marginal rates, as opposed to in a trust, which we know is the highest rate taxpayer in South Africa. So capital gains, for example, in an individual's hands is taxed at 18%, but in a trust at 36%. So we want to access that conduit principle. Now, if you have a non-resident beneficiary for South African tax purposes who is resident in Australia, Unfortunately, the conduit principle, as far as it relates to capital gains, is not available. So it means that all of that income or that capital gain will actually be taxed in the trust itself at a rate of 36%. So immediately you're in quite a high tax position from a South African perspective. Another thing a lot of people forget about, but which is very important, is exchange control. So it's not only taxes that you have to do planning around, it's exchange control. Unfortunately, a trust, a local trust, can't distribute directly to Australia. So it has to, because it's got no allowance. So it has to flow through a South African account. And unless that beneficiary living in Australia has gone through a formal reserve bank immigration, they will only be able to externalize their distributions using their foreign investment allowances, which is capped at 10 million, as you will know. So if they're looking at taking off more than 10 million rand, unfortunately, they won't be able to do so unless they go through a formal immigration process. And even if they have gone through this formal immigration process, the funding of the structure will determine whether or not the Reserve Bank will actually allow distributions to flow. So it gets quite tricky from both a South African tax and exchange control perspective, forgetting all the Australian complications that come in. <laughs> Let's invite those Australian complications into the room now. We've heard Liz talking about, you know, how do we look at foreign trusts from a South African perspective? Jonathan, what about from an Australian perspective? Yeah, sure. So with distributions from a non-resident trust, again, being a non-Australian trust, you've really got three different ways that a resident beneficiary may be taxed in Australia. 
The first is if it's a distribution of trust corpus, then that will be treated as a tax-free distribution to the beneficiary. And what I mean by corpus is the original settled sum. So if the trust was set up with $100 of capital, then that $100 is distributed to the beneficiary. The beneficiary won't be taxed on that. Additionally, any amounts contributed to the trust as further capital will also be corpus and can come out tax-free. If, however, it's a distribution of current year trust income, so let's assume the trust has generated interest income on bonds that it's invested in in a particular tax year and then distributes that interest income to the beneficiary, the beneficiary will, will be taxed on that at their marginal rate and that can be as high as 47%. And then finally, the other type of distribution is of capital or prior year accumulated income. So if the trust has uh, earned income in a particular year prior to the current tax year and then has sought to distribute that out to the beneficiary, the beneficiary will be taxed on that as well at their marginal tax rate. So again, as high as 47%, but there can also be an additional punitive charge um, in the form of an interest amount to reflect the benefit that the beneficiary has have has had of not having to pay tax since that income was earned by the foreign trust. And that's very harsh in certain circumstances. But the intention is to avoid circumstances where foreign trusts can roll up income and defer having to pay tax in Australia for a significant period of time. Jonathan, if we just add another angle to this, what about South African taxes paid? How does that come into play? Yep. So again, look, if South African taxes have been paid, we go back to the discussion that we had earlier which is that we need to understand who paid the tax in South Africa, who's paying the tax in Australia. And if there's a mismatch in taxpayers, there's always the risk that the South African tax paid won't be recoverable um, in the form of a tax credit. If, however, the beneficiary that's being taxed on the distribution also paid tax in South Africa, then ordinarily you would expect to get a tax credit under our domestic laws or under the treaty so that there's no double taxation. So, Jonathan, just jumping in there, I mean... What we're basically saying is that you can end up paying 36% tax in South Africa, plus you can end up paying up to 50% almost in Australia um, without getting relief for the 36 that you've paid here. So it can really end up being a, a dire situation if planning is not done properly. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You really need to plan and carefully look at what is being distributed and understand how tax has been paid on that previously, if at all, because you really could have a situation where you're not coming away with much money after the tax has been paid. So, Jonathan, I maybe want to just revert back to you here. We've been talking about trusts, we've been talking about companies, and in particular, what happens when distributions are made. What if no distributions are made by the respective entities? How does that then work itself out? Yeah, that's a really good question and it's something that often comes up with uh, conversations that I have with clients and with Liz as well, in fact, because the sleeper here is our specific integrity rules that apply to foreign companies and foreign trusts. And what those rules are designed to do is prevent residents from having offshore entities rolling up income and not paying Australian tax. So in circumstances where, for example, you've got an Australian resident that controls a foreign company, then that Australian resident, if they're a shareholder in the company, they can be taxed on any income that's accumulated by that foreign company, even where a dividend distribution has not been paid. So in other words, the shareholder will have an unfunded tax liability. Those rules are generally confined to passive income, so things like rent or interest, but it's particularly onerous. 
Similarly with trusts, they also apply on an attribution basis. So if an individual that is resident in Australia has previously transferred property or services to a foreign trust, and that foreign trust accumulates income offshore, then there's a risk that all of that income will be taxed in the hands of the Australian resident transferor, even though they haven't received a distribution. So again, an unfunded tax liability. So Jonathan, if we were to treat that as a framework, Liz, I want to bring you on the back of that framework to land some practical examples so that we can really get a good handle on how all of this works. What examples could you share with us? Jonathan, maybe we can look at some of the actual examples which we've looked at and worked on together. I mean, you've got mom and dad who are living in South Africa. The son has just gone to Australia. They all contributed funds into a trust and the consequences from a South African perspective are pretty straightforward. It will be business as usual. Assets which are in the trust will be taxed in the trust unless they're distributed to the beneficiary. If it's distributed to the mom and dad, it will be taxed at their rate. If it's distributed to the son in Australia, it's going to be taxed within the trust. Maybe you can touch on, you know, the son that has contributed a third of the assets, you know, what it's going to look like from an SA perspective. From an Australian perspective. Oh, sorry, from an Australian perspective, yeah. Yeah, that, look, that son will be what's called a transferor under our specific tax rules that I just spoke about. And so the consequence of that is in each income year after that son arrives into Australia, that son will be taxed on income accumulated by the trust. So let's say, for example, the trust derives rent of $100 and interest of $100 in a financial year when the son is in Australia, so it has $200, that sum will be taxed on that $200 unless he receives a distribution, in which case he'd be taxed anyway, but he'd have the cash. So it can be really onerous because it limits the way that, you know, taxpayers in South Africa and in Australia might plan to make particular distributions or roll up income for the benefit of the family group. And so what you might need to do is restructure the trust or refresh the trust to avoid circumstances like the son being taxed on that income. Yeah. And Jonathan, another example which we see is where mom and dad have put all the money in. The son hasn't contributed any money and he's now living in Australia, but he is actually a trustee. As you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you often see individuals acting as trustee of South African Trust. So now you've got a situation where you've got mom and dad who are living in South Africa, son who's living in Australia. He's not put any money into the structure. Now, no distributions are made. Do we have something to worry about? Yeah, it's a really good point as well. So if you remember what I was saying earlier about trustees being residents of Australia, that will make the trust a resident. And so if the son is a trustee but hasn't transferred any property or services, the integrity rules that I was speaking about don't apply, but the trust is now wholly within the Australian tax net. And that brings its own complexity because you'll have obviously dual residence issues where the trust is both South African resident and an Australian resident. Okay, so and then the last example that I want to talk about, because this is what we see happening quite often, is the son actually resigns as a trustee before he goes to Australia. So you've got mom and dad in South Africa, the son resigns as trustee, he's now in Australia, he doesn't in the first year, he doesn't receive any distributions, he's also not put any money into the structure, but in the second year, he does receive a distribution. 
talk us through Australia. Yeah, so that will be a relatively straightforward example of the trust won't be a resident so long as it's not controlled here and so long as the son's not a trustee, as you said. Our transfer or trust rules or our integrity rules won't apply because the son didn't transfer any property or services. So no implications for the son in Australia until a distribution is received. When the distribution is received, then we need to work out whether it's a distribution of corpus or current year income or accumulated income. And depending on that, that will influence whether the son is taxed or not. So Jonathan, if I had to summarise our conversation, there really are three top takeaways. You have to determine whether you are a trustee of a trust or have any kind of control over the structure, if you've put any money into the structure, or if you receive any kind of distribution as a beneficiary. Those three things are going to be what potentially trigger tax consequences in Australia. That's right. And I might just add one other point to that is not just transferred any property uh, to the trust, but also provided any services. Um, That's another critical point. So this is really interesting. I've really enjoyed listening to these different scenarios because they've really landed a lot of the concepts, really landed them home and made them so practical. We did end on this idea of talking about transfer. So maybe, Jonathan, I just want to build on that. Can you talk us through a little bit of the risks of inward transfers to Australian residents that are reported under the AUSTRAC system. Yeah, so these days the risks are significant. AUSTRAC monitors domestic transactions over $10,000 and banks have an obligation to report. So as soon as amounts coming in over $10,000 are reported, there's a really high risk, particularly if we're talking about significant amounts in the hundreds of thousands and millions of being detected and reported back to the Australian Taxation Office who will then send a questionnaire to the taxpayer asking them to please explain. And it will then be on the taxpayer to verify what that amount is. Uh, And if they haven't paid tax on it, they'll need to explain why uh, and why it is an income. So they will be expected to produce things like financial statements. If it's a trust distribution, trustee resolutions. If it's a gift, then they'll need to evidence, you know, any deed of gift and prove that it's come from someone out of natural love and affection. These are the sorts of issues that one really needs to turn their mind to uh, when significant sums of money are coming into the country. And so you've brought the Australian tax office into the conversation. So perhaps another question that might be top of mind now is if information is provided to the Australian tax office or the ATO, what are the risks that that information is shared between the ATO and the tax authorities of other beneficiaries that are based in other jurisdictions? Yeah, look, it's a risk. I mean, there, there are a number of ways that the ATO gets its hands on information, and that's through bilateral double tax agreements, through exchange treaties, and in particular with collaboration with other revenue authorities. And so that goes back to your question, really. We know that the tax office collaborates with other revenue authorities. We know that they exchange information between each other. And so really what that means is when that information goes back to, let's say, the South African Tax Authority, there's a high risk that they'll have information that relates to another beneficiary and they could then use that to conduct their own audit in South Africa. So that being the reality then, Liz, perhaps a question to you is, what are you seeing some of your clients doing or just observing as ways to mitigate the onerous tax consequences, especially in respect of distributions from trusts? So, Nausie, a popular transaction that we see happening is that a 
they will use a family member which is still situated in South Africa to get or to, to be able to transfer assets to family member in Australia. And what happens is a trust will make a distribution to a local resident beneficiary or it will make a loan to a local resident beneficiary. And then that beneficiary will make a gift to the individual in Australia or a donation or a loan to the individual in Australia. From a South African perspective, the tax consequences are pretty straightforward. So the beneficiary, if they receive a distribution, will pay tax on that distribution if there's tax payable. And when they make a gift, there will be obviously the 20% donations tax. What the structure then does is they hope that the taxes in South Africa is going to be less than the taxes which ultimately end up being in Australia. However, whilst it's pretty straightforward from a South African perspective, there are a lot of snags which could creep in from an Australian perspective. So I maybe want to land the conversation now as we begin to wrap, building on what you've said, Liz, but coming to you, Jonathan, just to touch on the tax implications for an Australian resident that receives gift or cash donations from a family member in another jurisdiction. How does that all hang together? Thanks, Nosy. Look, I mean, this is a really grey area, and that's because Australia doesn't actually impose a tax on gifts. So, you know, and conceptually, what Liz just described is a really good way of, you know, limiting the amount of tax that might otherwise be payable on a trust distribution. But the problem is, we do have specific provisions that allow the commissioner to impose tax on distributions that have ultimately, or gifts that have ultimately been sourced from a trust. Now, depending on the circumstances, if the commissioner takes the view that the gift is not a genuine gift, or it's part of an arrangement to make a distribution to a beneficiary who would have otherwise been taxed had they received a direct trust distribution, then that Australian resident receiving the gift could well be taxed in Australia. And I am seeing more often than not at the moment, the ATO attacking those kinds of arrangements. So it's something that you need to be very careful or something that taxpayers need to be very careful about. And they need to document these arrangements with precision to make sure that when the commissioner does ask questions, they can prove and evidence the genuineness of the gift so that there isn't any tax here in Australia. This conversation has been incredibly insightful and I'd love for us to close it off by lifting some of your own takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with. And maybe Liz, I'm going to lead with you first. What are your top three takeaways from this conversation? So Nausi, I mean, I don't think I can summarize it in three takeaways, but I mean, as you've all heard, there are a lot of complexities that one has to navigate when dealing with South Africa, Australia. Our team here at Investec, we are here to help you navigate through all of these complexities. There are a lot of pitfalls which you have to watch out for, but if you do your planning and structuring correctly before you actually go to Australia, you can really mitigate a lot of them. So I think, you know, first of all, planning. Planning is key and not once you're already there before you actually get there. What also is very important is that there is not a one-size-fits-all solution. You know, there different circumstances, each family is unique, and this is going to significantly impact 
the way that you need to move forward and the planning and structuring that needs to be done. And so, you know, getting advice is really critical in order to determine what the best route going forward is going to be for, you know, you and your family. And yours, Jonathan, your top takeaways, I'll, I'll omit the word three, just in case we get a really rich contribution from you as well. Well, I'd say plan, plan, plan. That's already three. But look, it's incredibly important that appropriate tax planning is undertaken prior to coming into Australia. Too often we see families or individuals coming over here and then getting the advice. And by that time, it's just too late. And it's really important as well when getting that advice that the individual is very clear about their intentions because that shapes the advice that will be given. They need to pull together documentary evidence for everything. They need to be prepared in a way that they'll be audited so that if questions do come from the ATO, they will be very much able to answer that and mitigate you know, costs that might be involved. And finally, I would suggest that from the outset, bringing the South African and Australian advisors together, because it's really critical for the two sets of advisors to work together both in relation to the exchange control issues and the exit planning, and then also on the Australian side in terms of what the consequences will be when they arrive here and making sure everything's consistent. Plan, plan, plan. I think that's a beautiful way of wrapping up this conversation. A massive thank you to you, Lizzie and Jonathan, for what's really been an insightful look at some of the most important considerations for South Africans when it comes to living or investing in Australia. Remember that you can find out about the ins and outs of living and investing in the US, in the UK and Mauritius by clicking on the links on this page. And as Lizzie indicated, no two families are the same. So please do get in touch with your private banker or your wealth manager if any of the conversations that have come out of this podcast are something that you would like to take forward with them. Remember also the importance of independent tax advice in your process of planning, planning and planning. From myself and the team and from Lizzie and Jonathan, thank you so much. It's goodbye. No two families are the same. And so we encourage you strongly to get in touch with your private banker or your wealth manager to take forward the conversations that have come out of this podcast. In addition to that, it's very important to get independent tax advice that is specific to your and your family's circumstances. Invested Wealth and Investment is a member of the JSC Equity, Equity Derivatives, Currency Derivatives, Bond Derivatives and Interest Rate Derivatives Markets, a registered credit provider and authorized financial services provider. The opinions featured in this podcast are not to be considered as the opinions of Invested Wealth and Investment and do not constitute financial or other advice.